Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Forum, which is the official podcast of the Diplomacy, Law and Policy Forum. Um, I am extremely delighted to have with me today Mr. Essen Ghazi, uh, who is uh, Director of the Center for Law, Justice and Policy, uh, based in Karachi. And we have him all the way from there today, here in Islamabad. And of course, he is a consultant with the International Committee of the Red Cross. Welcome to the show. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Uh, Essen, today's topic, I think, is something that, uh, you know, people who are in the IHL circle have a lot of interest in. And it's really how the judiciary in Pakistan has taken up the issue of IHL and, and how it's looked at that. And the specific case that I know you've done a lot of research on and, and you've written for uh, um, uh, DLP Forum this month as well, is on the, the Sindh High Court's judgment in um, EFU General Insurance uh, and Emirates Sky Cargo, uh, where, you know, the arguments, and I'm, sh- I'm sure you'll go into quite, quite a lot more detail in that, but it's, it's, uh, it's a very interesting case of whether a non-international armed conflict existed in Pakistan in 2014 or not. But before we go into the facts of that, I wanted to ask you, there have been a number of judgments that have, you know, lightly or or perhaps, you know, in varying degrees of depth, examined or looked at IHL. There's the Peshawar High High Court judgment uh, on drone strikes. Um, There is uh, the military courts, the 21st Amendment judgment, which also looked at military courts at the Supreme Court. They touched upon that. And of course, there's the the Gul Nawaz uh, versus Rashid Ahmed. Uh, 2021 case of the Supreme Court as well. So could you delve into some of these and and how IHL has been examined by the superior judiciary in Pakistan? All right. So uh, like you mentioned, we have three uh, concrete examples where IHL was um, explicitly, if not directly addressed, but still explicitly connected with the issues at hand. So the first one is the Peshawar High Court's judgment on the legality of the drone strikes where the Honorable Court delved into the requirements of common article 3 as well as the requirements of article 51 of the additional protocol 1 as well as far as the drone strikes were attacking civilian objects and civilians and there in in the judgment the peshawar high court um, held that the drone strikes occurring in pakistan are a violation of common article 3 as well as the additional protocol 1 and 2 as far as civilians are being um, injured or subject to unnecessary suffering. Absolutely. Then we have the 21st Amendment case, uh, the military court's judgment, where the Supreme Court held that trial by certain circumstances exist, namely that being of an armed conflict in Pakistan between the government and the various non-state armed groups, which warranted uh, trial of civilians by special courts or courts by mar- uh, by courts martial. Okay. So this was another incident where where uh, constitutional court in Pakistan uh, sort of interacted with IHL, and then we have the um, Sindh High Court judgment as well, which came out in 2020, which explicitly went into the common article 3 its twofold requirements and then went into a into a detailed um, inquiry as to whether an armed conflict existed or not at the time of the karachi airport attack of 2014 Absolutely. and then came the judgment of the supreme court in the gul nawaz versus which came out just last year which came out just last year now the issue in all these judgments is that we if we go through these we are going to see various degrees of um, acceptability or openness to incorporate or look to IHL to interpret the situation at hand. In the 
drone strikes case, the Peshawar High Court explicitly went into detail with respect to additional protocol 1, 2 and the common article 3. In the military court's case, we see another trend. Even though the court was establishing and explicitly saying a situation of armed conflict existed in the time which warranted creation of uh, military courts, it had a very good opportunity to also look towards the principles of IHL and common article 3 and, you know, sort of go into depth with respect to the requirements of an NIAC, but the court did not do so. So this shows some sort of hesitancy. Then we have the uh, example of the Sindh High Court in the EFU general, um, EFU general Insurance case where they again went in depth into the principles of IHL and um, the Geneva Conventions to determine whether an armed conflict existed or not. But then again, the next year we have another judgment where the court had the opportunity to go into detail with respect to IHL since it was uh, addressing an issue of um, constitution of courts by non-state armed groups. Within so, so, so this is a really interesting case. Gul Nawaz, um, could, could you go into some of the, the facts yes. of this very briefly? So, so the facts of that case were that it was a civil suit which was uh, appealed before the Supreme Court and it was for the specific performance of uh, a decree or a judgment which was passed by the Taliban when they had um, so, so Taliban court issued uh, a decree, a, a yes. decree, and this and and the petitioners were trying to enforce that through, through the Supreme through the, Court of Pakistan. Yes, that's very interesting. So the Supreme Court obviously rejected that, and they held that constitution of courts by the TTP have no legal effect whatsoever, and they cannot be uh, enforced through the courts. But then again, they missed an opportunity to sort of go into the the phenomena itself, constitution of courts by uh, non-state armed groups and under the common article 3. So they missed that opportunity to sort of delve into that a little bit more. And, and I, I think there was also this very interesting point on um, the Taliban having control over territory. Yes, exactly. Which they had okay. Exactly. So the Supreme Court also in its obiter portion remarked that uh, the TTP had um, effective control over certain parts of Pakistani territory. And the court held that obviously this was um, unlawful or illegal annexation. So, again, the court did not view it from the lens of IHL. It viewed the entire situation from the local law perspective. So, then again, we see hesitancy. Some In some cases, we are seeing. So, uh, if I were to say that, is there a trend being developed that courts in Pakistan are more open to adopting IHL in cases like these? Uh, the question is, um, I don't know for sure. Sometimes there's hesitancy, sometimes there's um, a tacit acceptance and recognition of IHL. I see, but it's very interesting because all of these cases, almost all of these cases, um, except for the one we're discussing, EFU, yeah. is are related to, to FATA. Uh, and, and I would even argue, you know, EFU is also linked to that in a sense that yeah. if you are trying to establish that, you know, a Nike is happening in Pakistan, yes. FATA was the, or erstwhile FATA was the yes. real locus of that uh, entire discussion. Right, yes. because that is where we were having, uh, you know, all-out military operations exactly. against non-state actors. Exactly. Uh, so it's very interesting how and even all of these in cases. the Sin High Court's uh, judgment in EFU general insurance, which we are discussing, uh, one of the many factors that the court was considering to establish an IAC was that there have been military operations being launched against the Erst in the erstwhile Fata by the 
armed forces of Pakistan against these various non-state absolutely, armed forces. Absolutely, absolutely. So all of these cases really emerged from from that. Yes. And and I mean it was and it's it's not surprising. I would expect this to to happen because you know uh, the 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 conflict in Fata took place over such a vast period of time. Uh, it had such a profound impact on, on Pakistan, on the daily life of Pakistanis, not just those who live in, in Fata, but the rest of the entire country as well. Absolutely. Because we saw uh, its, its impact uh, everywhere. And that's really, I think, what um, uh, gives us an idea of how IHL, even if it's, uh, I mean, conflict, even if it's located to one particular region within a country, mm-hmm. how it impacts and seeps into the rest of the entire uh, population and, and people Absolutely. there. Absolutely. While active hostilities were indeed taking place in the erstwhile Fata, the effects reverberated across the country. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's, let's move on to the case now. I mean, we've discussed some of the previous judgments, yes. but, but EFU General Insurance versus Emirates Sky Cargo. Could you briefly explain uh, what happened in this case? Yes. All right. So the most interesting aspect about this case is that um, this was essentially an insurance dispute between insurance com- companies and the cargo airliners. All good case law comes from insurance cases. <laughs> Absolutely. So uh, one of the surprising things is how how can an insurance dispute give rise to the application of and classification of an IAC within Pakistan? So basically, the facts of the case are that on 8th June, uh, the Karachi airport attack was under siege by um, some various, uh, some uh, members of a non-state armed group, which were which were having an alliance with the, the TTP. So they stormed the airport disguised in um, the outfits of security forces and uniforms they, and, and weapons and stuff like exactly. that. Exactly, they had heavy ammunition and they subjected the airport to a siege which lasted for about four to six hours. So during that process, um, we all have read about it. During that entire siege, the attack, uh, there was uh, a cargo terminal that was subject to considerable um, damage and destruction, as well as the cargo within the premises of the the terminal. So from that, insurance companies filed a dispute against the cargo airliners claiming um, the claims uh, claiming settlement with respect to the damaged cargo and herein where the dispute lay now the carriage by air act of 2012 stipulates that if cargo is destroyed or damaged on account of an armed conflict then the air carrier in this case the cargo airliners are not responsible very interesting so the entire claim hinged upon the interpretation of an armed conflict and whether the cargo's, uh, the cause of the cargo's destruction, namely the Karachi airport attack of 2014, mm-hmm. was an armed conflict or part of an armed conflict or not. I see, I see. So this is where the entire legal controversy lay. Uh, that's very interesting. Now, um, uh, so, so, so what did the court exactly then determine based on this? Did they determine that, you know, yes, uh, an IAC existed or, or, or how did the judgment go? All right. So the court, majority, the major part of the court's decision factored and considered various instances. And I mean, the verdict was that the Karachi airport attack was part of okay. an armed conflict that had been going on in Pakistan since 2001 or two. Right. So that is what the court held. And then the majority portion of the judgment goes into a detailed analysis of the relevant principles of IHL, namely mm-hmm. those relating to the existence of a non-international armed conflict, 
and common article 3. So the court went into details and established the twofold requirements of the NIAC, intensity and organization of parties. However, the court did uh, in some areas with respect to these twofold requirements. And then the court considered a lot of factors. They considered the operations that we just discussed, mm -hmm. as well as the various instances of violence, bombings, terrorist attacks happening all over the country from 2001 up till date. So this is what the court held that the Karachi airport attack was indeed part of a wider armed conflict uh, occurring in Pakistan. Absolutely. And, and you had mentioned that, you know, that there is quite complicated criteria that, mm. the, that the court was trying to apply here. And, and you think that it erred in, in one or two uh, parts. Yes. Where exactly and, and how do you think the court should have maybe uh, looked at this, yeah. this particular case? All right. So... We know what the criteria for a NIAC is. Yeah. The, we can thank the ICTY for that because the ICTY uh, was, is, is considerably developed mm -hmm. these two criteria during the cases it was deciding. So Absolutely. one, we know obviously there should be intensity of the conflict. And second, the organization of the parties. Now, obviously, government forces are already inherently considered to be sufficiently organized. Mm -hmm. The question lies whether the non-state armed group is sufficiently organized that they can be considered a party to the conflict. Now, as far as intensity is concerned, the Sindh High Court did a good job at explaining the intensity with respect to the facts. They took into account the incidents, the mm -hmm. nature, the number of the incidents, the types of weapons being used by the non-state armed group and the forces, the number of operations that have been conducted against these non-state armed groups. The court, however, erred with respect to the organization element. If you read the judgment, it mm -hmm. says and refers to, uh, it does not refer or highlight a single entity. It refers to the entire, uh, all these groups under a single umbrella of terrorist militia. Absolutely, especially when, you know, the group that actually attacked the airport was a splinter group. Exactly. Uh, so, so, so how, how did they resolve that? I, I, I believe that's where they might have made a, made a mistake in Exactly. It. Now, why is this important? Let's just delve into that for a second. Why is it really important to highlight which uh, entity is a party to the conflict and which isn't? So this is important for the reason that this determination leads us to conclude which body of law applies to that particular group yeah. with respect to the state's action. If they're a non-state armed group, the state gains certain privileges with respect to uh, sort of uh, dealing with them or targeting them as far as use of force and detention is concerned. But if they are not, then the state has to uh, sort of deal with them in a way which is compliant with the domestic laws of the state as well as the applicable human rights regime. Now, the problem with sort of combining all these entities under the umbrella of terrorist militias or disgruntled entities as the Sindh High Court has done uh, leaves open this uh, criteria that who exactly was a party to this conflict was the TTP, even though they claimed responsibility for it. So this was something that the court should have easily considered, that the TTP was sort of responsible for this attack. It was a splinter group. And then the court could have also taken into account the various uh, splinter groups or alliances that we uh, sort of have here. I see, I see, I see. No, that, that, that absolutely makes sense. Um, and, and I think that is a, an opportunity that was overlooked 
by, exactly. by the court here. Now, there's a very interesting point that you raise in, in your article for, for DLP Forum this month. And that is that, um, that it's okay to use future events uh, from, you know, the, the, the actual act uh, or, or actions which are part of the contentious matter in, in the court to retroactively establish that an armed conflict existed at the time. Yes. And, and, and I think this is something that has also been done in this judgment. Yes. And you're saying that that is okay to do. Uh, are you expecting us to go into a time machine and, and, and go back in time and then make determinations? But, but could you explain that argument a little more that how can we yes. determine the existence of, a, of an armed conflict based on future events that ha have yet to take place uh, as such. All right, so one of the criticisms for this judgment, uh, some commentators have highlighted that um, the court considered two events, the Sindh High Court considered two events beyond 8th of June 2014 mm -hmm. to fit the incident of 8th June 2014 into the overarching conflict. The first was that the court considered to establish intensity the court considered the fact that uh, these, again, terrorist militias have been um, involved in even bombing uh, and attacking places of education as well, namely the APS massacre of December uh, 2014. Absolutely. The so so the same year, but December of that December, year. Yes. The other incident that the court considered was the Supreme Court's uh, findings in the military court's case, which came out in 2016. The 21st Amendment case. The 21st Amendment case. Okay. So these two events were considered by the court to establish intensity of the conflict. Now, even though, even though they were determining what happened in June 2014, yes. they're looking at December 2014 and 2016 exactly. to make that determination. Okay. Yes. So, commentators have suggested that courts should confine themselves to the time, relevant time and place when it comes to determining the conflict. Now, when the best place to look for it, I disagree with it for two reasons. Because one, there is no international practice of the ICTY which leads us to that conclusion. And second, as a matter of logic, I do not think we should confine, we should place this restriction on the court that it should only be confined to the relevant time and place when it's determining whether a conflict existed or not because of the nature of the rights of the parties involved as a result of that determination. So the first reason, as far as international practice is concerned, yes. the ICTY, the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, in at least two instances, both in the same case, first in the trial chamber, in the Tadic case, it was actually prosecuting the accused for the events which occurred in 1992. But the court explicitly stated in paragraph, the trial chamber in paragraph 566 that in considering the overarching situation, the court is not bound to confine itself to the relevant time and place, that being 1992, and even considered events up till 1995 wow. to make that determination whether a conflict existed at the time or not when the accused in that case had committed those crimes. In the same case, when the case went to the appeals chamber, the appeals chamber went into an in-depth inquiry as to whether the VRS, the Army of the Republic of Srpska, was under the overall control of the uh, Serbian government at that time. 
And in doing so, the court wanted to determine whether an international armed conflict existed by way of such overall control. I see, I see, I see. And in that case as well, the appeals chamber considered events up till 1998-2000 to determine the relationship between the VRS and the um, Serbian government to determine whether a conflict existed or not. So that's the first reason why I disagree with this approach. That so you're essentially saying, if I, if I understand this mm -hmm. uh, correct, that to determine the trajectory of a conflict, yes. you are picking one point that may be earlier in time, but you're looking, because you have the benefit of hindsight, exactly. looking at the rest of the points to determine what that trajectory ultimately led to. Absolutely. Okay, 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 okay. So I think because of the nature of rights involved, classifying a conflict means the application of IHL and not and obviously concurrently with the application of IHRL as well. But then it gives it results in the determination of whether someone should be accorded POW status or mm -hmm. not, whether someone can be detained for security reasons or not, whether what amount of force can a state use. So because of these reasons, it's not. Uh, in my personal opinion, wise to restrict the court from exercising the benefit of hindsight. Very interesting. That is, uh, that's certainly, you know, an interesting way of looking at it. Uh, and we certainly see that, you know, international practice has had this, this as a backing. So exactly. I'm not going to argue more on you, with you on this. <laughs> um, just just as, a, as, a, as a final question to, to round this off. Um, we know that, you know, IHL has been at times misapplied uh, yes. within uh, within by uh, by the judiciary here in Pakistan. What do you think needs to be done, uh, or, or what type of capacity building or training do do we need to give our judiciary um, so they can improve their judgments when it comes to the application of IHL? So basically, I have two recommendations. Okay, and this is all from the study we conducted under the EFU General Insurance um, case study. So the first is it, it was um, so we went through the written submissions and the oral arguments that the lawyers themselves presented to the court. Now we while it's true that the, the court has to apply its own independent and judicial mind as well, but we cannot ignore the fact that the quality of assistance being provided to the court also has a sufficient bearing on how the court is going to deliver its judgment as well. And then when we went through the written submissions of the plaintiffs and the defendants in EFU General Insurance, we came to the conclusion and we saw that most of the mistakes that were found in the court's verdict were also found in the submissions of the parties as well, even the, uh, in the submissions of the lawyers as well, counsel in this, on those cases as well. And that just goes to show that it's not just that the courts have an issue with respect to interpreting and applying IHL, but also the councils need considerable training so that they can better assist this court should a situation like that arise in the future. So you're speaking about the legal community as a whole? Exactly. Okay. okay. The second is for the courts themselves. Most of the cases we discussed, they're from the superior judiciary, the constitutional courts. So as far as the superior judiciary is concerned, we have seen, as far as the example of Pakistan is concerned, each judge has a competence in a, in a distinct area of practice. So we have seen that in the high courts, there are special judges which are running tax benches. There are special judges which are running, uh, depending obviously on the basis of their experience, they're running company benches. Some have expertise in criminal law, then they're heading criminal law benches. Then I think 
why should we not also create special benches when it comes to issues of international law? And we identify the members of the superior judiciary who are uh, who have expertise and experience. We have people like that as well. And then we can formulate that the superior judiciary can constitute special benches where issues of IHL and international law in general can be better left to application and interpretation by people who will have a better idea of how to engage with this body of law. Absolutely. And, and I think uh, an important point is that, you know, um, the superior judiciary, the constitutional mm -hmm. uh, judiciary in Pakistan, uh, they, they also have a variety of resources at their disposal. Absolutely. From judicial officers who act as researchers and support mm -hmm. uh, to having law clerks exactly. and, and very well qualified law clerks, especially the Supreme Court of Absolutely. Pakistan. And I think utilizing them uh, towards this and allowing, you know, some of those law clerks who specialize in international law, mm -hmm. uh, I think is a critical aspect of, of this entire thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Essen, thank you so much for joining us and for coming from all the way for you for this. Uh, we're very, very grateful. I think it's a wonderful discussion where we got into some of the depth of, uh, you know, this case as well as a number of other uh, cases. Um, and and uh, I'm hopeful that, you know, uh, future cases on IHL will be able to, uh, you'll be able to play a greater part, uh, maybe come in as, a, as an amicus <laughs> and, and play a role there. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you. Thank you for having me.